Welcome, friends, to Worldwide Crime. I'm Eric, as always, and I'm joined by my co-host, Erica. Hello. Mm, that's it? Wow, comprehensive. I'm on the edge of my seat. Shut up. This week we'll be covering the exploits and crimes of the Tube Sock Killer. You know, I wanted to take uh, the low-hanging fruit here and pick, like, Bundy or Gary Ridgway or something like that. But uh, I wanted to go for something a little bit more less known, I guess you could say. What the hell is a tube sock? It's a sock. It's a tube sock. Why is this something you're asking right now? Aren't all socks tubes? We had a request on our Facebook page for a local crime uh, here in Washington State by Emily. So this is the one we went with. Yes. Shout out to Emily. Thanks again so much for the request, Emily. And let's get into today's story. On August 14, 1985, two hikers were making their way through the forest near Tule Lake when they stumbled upon Stephen Harkin's body. Tule Lake is around 10 miles south of Tacoma in Washington State. Stephen was still in a sleeping bag with a single gunshot wound to his head, indicating he was executed while sleeping. It later became evident that his fiancée, Ruth, who was reported last accompanying Stephen on the camping trip, had likely met a similar fate. However, there was no sign of Ruth at the scene. With no evidence showing that she was harmed, she was declared missing. The couple's dog was also found shot to death nearby. Okay, here's the thing. Loss of life is usually tragic. But a dog? It just hits different. Don't kill dogs, people. It's a dick move, and I will forever hate you. Dogs bra. Yeah, dogs. 27-year-old Stephen Harkins and his fiancée, 42-year-old Ruth Cooper, both worked at a vocational school in Tacoma. Ruth was a single mother of four children. She and Stephen met at work and began a relationship. On August 10th, the couple attended a friend's wedding in Tacoma. After, the two set out to the forest near Tule Lake for a camping trip that same weekend. When the couple had not shown up to work the next Monday, they were reported missing. A couple months later, on October 26th, Ruth's body was discovered laying near a dead-end road, approximately one and a half miles from the discovery of Stephen's body. She had been shot in the abdomen and decapitated. As investigators searched for her head, it was found about 50 feet away the same day. A tube sock was tied around what was left of her neck. The cause of death was determined to be the gunshot, and her head removed post-mortem. Ola, uh, Stephen was punching up there a bit, eh? What? I mean, you know, he was 27, she was 42. I know what you meant, but why was that your takeaway from what we just heard? It's just an observation. Damn. It's disrespectful, you fucking donkey. Okay, I'm sorry. Fuck. Just get on with it. Authorities had no leads and no idea why this couple had been murdered. Checking their backgrounds, they seemed good people and had clean records. Police found Ruth and Stephen had no notable enemies. 
none that would resort to such drastic and brutal measures as a punishment anyway. The murders of Stephen Harkins and Ruth Cooper would go unsolved. On December 12, 1985, Mike Reamer, Diana Robertson, and their two-year-old daughter, Crystal, entered the forest near the Nisqually River. This point of the river was approximately 60 miles south of Tacoma. The family was in search of a Christmas tree that day. 36-year-old Mike was an avid outdoorsman and trapped animals in this forest for extra income during the winter months. Mike knew this vast area well as he had been trapping in these woods for years. Mike was a roofer in Tacoma. He was known as a work hard, play hard type of guy. He was considered by friends to be a quote, man's man, end quote. Mike being the outdoorsman he was often carried a firearm. Mike was also known to have a very short temper. According to those close to the couple, Mike had beaten 21-year-old Diana several times. At one point, Diana confided to her mother that he threatened to kill her and that he'd get away with it. Okay, one second here. Yep, according to my calculations, this guy sucks. Beating your partner is a real bitch move. Agreed. Especially when there's a child involved. Fuck him. Yep. All the way up and all the way down. Diana would tire of these abuses and became concerned for the safety of their daughter. Mike adored Crystal. Those close to the family found it hard to believe he would ever harm the child. Diana would eventually leave Mike, taking out a restraining order against him. But before Christmas of that year... Mike and Diana reconciled. She and Crystal moved back into the family home, and all seemed well. Later, the same afternoon as the family's trip to Nisqually River, an employee of a Spanaway Kmart nearly 30 miles from where the family had gone found Crystal standing at the forest's edge and crossed the street from the store. Spanaway is located approximately 10 miles south of Tacoma. She was alone and disheveled. The employee ran over to her and asked her where her parents were. Crystal said nothing. She just stared blankly. Noticing the young girl was in obvious distress, the employee quickly picked Crystal up and carried her into the store. That's just sad. Who abandons a two-year-old like that? My best guess is an asshole. That is a totally fair assumption. Crystal was asked where her parents were by other employees. She continued staring blankly, saying nothing. An announcement was made over the department store's intercom asking if anyone was looking for the young girl. No one came forward. Police were then notified of the circumstances in which Crystal was found, and they arrived at the Kmart shortly after receiving the call. Authorities took Crystal to the hospital to be checked out, then to the police station where she was again asked where her parents were and how she ended up where she was discovered. Crystal continued saying nothing with the same blank stare. It appeared to police that Crystal was suffering from shock. Little Crystal was placed in temporary foster care and her photo was released to the press. 
The press printed and broadcast the photo along with the story behind her discovery. Three days later, Crystal's grandmother, Louise Conrad, recognized the photo in the paper. She called the phone number that accompanied Crystal's story and revealed who she was. Louise told authorities that she had been calling Mike and Diana after they were supposed to have returned home from the trip to the woods. They weren't answering, nor returning her calls. This was concerning to Louise, but she chalked it up to them being busy and that she would hear from them soon enough. I don't answer my phone. Why? Because I don't like being on the phone. How do people get a hold of you? Text. That wasn't an option in the 80s, dickhead. I know that. I'm just saying some people don't like talking on the phone. Louise, after the discovery of Crystal, alone and scared, abandoned at a Spanaway Kmart, became extremely worried about Mike and Diana. Louise knew that under no circumstance would they abandon little Crystal. This meant to Louise something bad must have happened to them. Upon her arrival to pick up Crystal, she grilled police about the whereabouts of Mike and Diana. Authorities had no answers for Louise. Police didn't even know who Mike and Diana were until their first contact with Louise. Crystal was ultimately sent to live with Louise. Being in her loving grandmother's care, Crystal became more and more verbal, as verbal as a toddler could be, especially given what everyone feared she had likely witnessed. Louise continued asking Crystal what had happened to her parents, and eventually, Crystal answered. Crystal then latched on to her grandmother in a tight embrace. Crystal could only conjure the words, Mommy is in the trees. That's a bit cryptic. Well, she's two. Do you expect her to regale her grandmother with a descriptive tale of events? I know, I know. I'm just saying, like, it makes it a little bit more haunting, I guess. This description of her mother's whereabouts, though provided by a two-year-old, led police to the conclusion that Crystal's parents could just be lost in the forest. Mike's friends and family found it hard to believe that Mike and Diana were lost in the woods, given Mike's familiarity with the area. Mike and Diana love young Crystal emphatically. No one close to the family believed the couple could just leave their two-year-old at a Kmart by herself. That weekend, a search was launched. Mike's friends were familiar with the area in which Mike set his traps and began searching for the couple. Though the search was conducted by ground as well as air, this was a very large area, and they ultimately failed to locate young Crystal's parents. After hours of looking, the search would then be terminated. The snow on the ground made the search effort difficult, to say the least. Some locals began to theorize that Mike must have killed Diana and then fled to avoid capture. Given Mike's history of violence towards Diana, this seemed a likely conclusion. I buy that over them just being lost. Oh yeah, samesies. We all know Mike is capable of offing Diana. I mean, he's threatened to do it. But I don't think that there's any way he would ditch his daughter at a Kmart. A few months later, on February of 1986, 
Diana's body was discovered deep in the forest near LB Washington by a man walking his dog on a secluded logging road approximately 15 miles from where the family had been searching for a Christmas tree and where Mike had usually set his traps. Her body was mostly covered in snow indicating she'd been there for some time. The scene had an eerie similarity to the hiker's discovery of Stephen and Ruth just months earlier. However, instead of gunshot wounds, Diana had been stabbed 17 times. What gave this crime the eerie similarity was a tube sock tied around Diana's neck. The sock was tied with the same type of knot as the one found around what remained of Ruth's neck. Diana's body was found lying next to Mike's truck. The bright red truck would have been easily seen from the air in the search for the couple had it been in the search area. But the truck was also covered in snow. This meant that the truck and Diana had been dumped at the same time. Mike, however, was nowhere to be seen. Plot twist. The whole tube sock thing has got to be the killer's signature. I mean, neither sock and neither case was determined to be the murder weapon. Okay, so it almost seems like the killer was wrapping a gift for police. That's fucked up, but I guess it could actually be the case. Going back to Ruth and Stephen, it's almost as if Stephen was in the killer's way and Ruth was the real prize. Otherwise, Stephen would have had a sock tied around his neck too. There's a fair amount of rage in these murders, especially the second one. I think it's fair to assume that, that the killer just hates women. During both cases, I mean, they seem to be the ones that were ultimately targeted. And the men... Well, in Stephen's case, anyways, was like just in the way. Like he just had to be moved out of the way so the killer could get to his ultimate prize, which, you know, like we said, is a woman. That's the way I see it. Inside the truck, there were blood stains on the passenger seat and a handwritten note on a manila envelope that read, I love you, Diana. It was confirmed by family that this was, in fact, Mike's handwriting but investigators could not confirm that to be true. Given the location of Diana's body and Mike's truck located approximately 15 miles from where Stephen and Ruth's bodies were discovered, Mike became the prime suspect in all three murders. Mike's friends and family believe that Mike could not be responsible for these crimes. They believe Mike had also been slain and his body dumped elsewhere. The biggest questions for friends and family was how a two-year-old could walk 30 miles through the dense forest only to wind up at a Kmart in Spanaway. The short answer is not possible. And if Crystal was indeed dropped off by Mike, how was his truck at the location of Diana's body? Did he drop the child off, go back to the crime scene, leave the truck containing the large blood stains in the envelope? then run off into the woods? This seemed unlikely to those close to Mike. Or was Mike also killed and dumped elsewhere, framed with evidence to appear as the killer? Despite all this, 
Investigators concluded that Mike was responsible for these murders, and Mike being the skilled outdoorsman that he is was simply living off the land. Does that seem a bit lazy to you? What? The police, I mean. I guess. I feel like there was more evidence pointing to him not being the guy. They just wanted to be able to tell the public something, probably to get them off their backs. Maybe. Really hope you're wrong, though. Me too. The evidence gathered at the scene where Diana had been discovered was, at the time, entirely circumstantial. The blood found in Mike's truck was tested by an FBI forensic laboratory, but the blood had degraded over time. The only thing authorities knew for certain was that the blood was human. With forensic technology at the time, the lab was unable to verify the blood type, let alone if it belonged to Diana. The lab also analyzed the note and the rest of Mike's truck. This got authorities no closer to confirming Mike's involvement. Even with no hard evidence, he was penned as the prime suspect. See? Yeah, that's a shame. Fast forward to March of 2011. Mike's skull was discovered by a hunter approximately one mile from where Diana and Mike's truck were found 25 years earlier. Investigators confirmed the skull belonged to Mike through dental records. The skull contained no evidence of a gunshot or any other type of trauma. However, the rest of Mike's remains were not found. They remain missing to this day. It was assumed that the rest of Mike's remains must have been buried. Because of this, a cause of death could not be determined. Now that Mike's skull was discovered, and it was obvious to police that Mike's skull had been where it was found for a great deal of time, and was dated to around the time of the original murders, Mike was no longer a suspect in the murder investigation. He was now considered as a victim of the same killer. Boom. Okay, calm down. No, why don't you calm down? Your voice inflection blows. It's confusing. Stay on topic. The perpetrator of these horrific murders was dubbed the Tube Sock Killer. Edward Smith and Kimberly Diane Levine, a couple from Kent, Washington, in the Seattle-Tacoma metropolitan area, had also been abducted and murdered. Smith and Levine met while attending the University of Southeastern Massachusetts at Dartmouth and were deeply in love. After graduation in 1984, the couple moved to Kent and worked as government accountants. Everything seemed to be going well for them as they began their journey in life, and the two were soon engaged to be married. That day never came. What happened that night wouldn't be known for years. But it certainly ended in murder as the following day Smith's body was found in a gravel pit close to the Wanapum Dam. His hands were tied behind his back and his throat slit, missing his wallet and IV. It wouldn't be until later that the police managed to identify Edward. A major search was launched to find Levine, and two weeks afterward, the couple's vehicle was found abandoned 10 miles away from where Smith's body was discovered. A fingerprint was recovered from the hood of the couple's vehicle, but still no sign of the missing woman. 
It took until August before Levine was found. The same month that Cooper and Harkins were killed, Levine's body was found in sagebrush two miles from her fiancé and skeletonized through exposure and predation. No sock this time. Not this time, but that doesn't mean it wasn't the same douchebag that killed the others. True. I guess maybe if it was the same douchebag, he got interrupted while tying the sock? I don't know. I guess we'll find out now that a fingerprint was found. While still actively investigating the murders, the case took a turn on December 12, 1985, when Mike, Diana, and Little Crystal set out to find the perfect Christmas tree. In 1989, police solved the Smith and Levine case when they positively linked the fingerprint found on their vehicle to a truck driver by the name of Billy Ray Ballard Jr. Ballard was arrested months after the killings for the abduction, torture, and rape of two women in Wyoming, his fingerprints finally proving a match. He confessed to the murder of Smith and Levine and pleaded guilty at his trial. Being sentenced to a mandatory life sentence, he was undoubtedly at large during the time of both sets of murders in Washington, though there was no evidence he was in any way involved. No sock was found in the murders committed by Ballard, and given the composition of tube socks, decomposition is highly unlikely. Not our douchebag. It appears not. So, who did it? Would you hold your damn horses? There's still more to the story. I only ask because you are also a douchebag and maybe could offer some insight. Uh-huh. How long you been setting up that little zinger? Don't worry about what I worry about. Okay, hey, here's a neat question. Are we done dunking on me now? We are, for now. However, in all three murder cases, the woman was found some distance away from the man and in two cases, the skull of the victim was found separate from the body. However, this is not unusual due to wildlife sometimes carrying bones away to different locations. While never linked to the other unsolved killings in Washington, another similar pair of killings took place in November of 1987, around 100 miles away on the other side of Seattle. 20-year-old Jay Cook and 18-year-old Tanya Van Kylenborg traveled from Canada to purchase parts for Jay's father's business. They were last seen boarding a ferry in Bremerton. Tanya's body was found in a ditch near Alger on November 24th. Alger. It's pronounced Alger. I fucked that up. As douchebags often do. Oh my god. She'd been bound, raped, and shot in the head. Her wallet and keys were found thrown away at a Greyhound bus station. We may never know the identity of the tube sock killer, or if all of these murders are linked. What we do know is monsters exist in Washington State. bit at the end, bit grandiose, don't you think? I thought it was cool, but whatever. I hate it when shit like this goes unsolved. Oh god, me too. But maybe they'll solve it someday, I, who knows what the future holds. But at any rate, 
that is the story of the Jumpsock Killer. Join us next time as we cover the Beast of Jersey. Don't forget to follow us on whatever platform you get your podcasts. And if you enjoy stories like this one, don't be afraid to give us a five-star rating. Until next time, friends, stay safe, and we'll see ya. Goodbye.